You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet two rings on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. 
You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence of the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall all be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a singular piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 578 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 14th, 2023, and that was Exodus chapter 25. Referring to yesterday's episode, I would just point out that this is part of what is going on in the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses is up on Mount Sinai with the Lord receiving the law for the people of Israel. This is part of what is being told to him because the last verse of chapter 24 is that Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights with Yahweh. And yet, how are the people faring? How are the people doing back in the camp? As we read on, we will find out, but God knows. God knows when he is telling Moses these things. And it's interesting. We'll refer back to it, I hope, I trust, as we get to the incident with the golden calf in a bit in the coming episodes. But it's interesting that you have God telling Moses in detail how he wants the Ark of the Covenant and the table for the bread and the golden lampstand and all these various details, how he wants these things to be built and fashioned out of what and in what manner, 
and what measurements, and at the same time or roughly in the same month and 10 days period, you have the people of Israel saying, let's create a new God for ourselves out of gold. Let's gather all of the gold in the camp together and let's melt it down and let's fashion a golden calf for ourselves. And then we will say, this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. 40 days is all it takes. 40 days and Israel is going astray badly, you know, diametrically (laughs) in the opposite direction. They're going badly astray. And it reminds me of another thing we talked about in yesterday's episode, which is how Paul warns the Christians in Acts chapter 20. This is the last time you're going to see me, and you know how I have loved you, how I have given you the whole counsel of God in verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They will come in among you, which is to say that what? They're going to look like fellow Christians, but they won't actually be. They'll be wolves, wolves in sheep's clothing. Even the devil comes as an angel of light and can appear as an angel of light. Don't uncritically trust the spirits. But I think you see that this is not a newfangled thing when you read Exodus 25. People are people. The dynamics haven't dramatically changed from Moses to Paul to our day. People are people. And so the Lord's servant leaves, departs, goes away, goes to be with God, goes to somewhere else to continue on being obedient, which is to say also that God has sent them somewhere else, and it's not them abandoning their responsibilities. Their responsibility, first and foremost, is to obey God. So God calls Moses up on the mountain, knowing full well what Israel is going to do. God is going to call Paul, the apostle, to somewhere else and then bring him home eventually, knowing full well. And Paul knows full well. Wolves are going to come in among you, and they won't be gentle. They will be rough and mean and vicious. Take care. Pay attention. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Care for the church of God. It's interesting to me that God knows exactly what's going on and what's about to happen and is not ruffled. Isn't that remarkable? He's not anxious. He's not ruffled. None of it takes him by surprise. In fact, he gives some advanced notice to his servants We're also told, don't be anxious for anything. And so what do we do as we're not being anxious? Do we say, ah, I know something is about to happen and 
I just need to be very worried about it. I need to be stressed out about it. I need to be everywhere all at once because I can't let anything bad happen. Is that what God calls us to? Is that reasonable? What is that to us? We are supposed to take care. So what does that look like? And how is it balanced after a fashion with a humble recognition of our own finitude and the remembrance that God, even as he is giving these specifications, these instructions to Moses, knows full well what's going on down in the camp. How do we balance the awareness of all of these pieces? Something to consider. It's something to consider. In this episode, I want to talk a bit about history. And let's talk about the history of our own civilization. I'm an American, but my ancestors came from somewhere. They didn't start out here. Everybody's ancestors came here from somewhere. Ultimately, as a Bible-believing Christian, my view is that we came from wherever the ark came to rest. We all come from that place. And I don't believe that that was here in North America. So in some sense, we're all immigrants here, even the Native Americans, even the indigenous people as we think of them. Do we know how long they've been here for sure, for sure? Archaeologists, historians have some idea or they make their best guess based on the archaeological record, based on what they find when they dig in the dirt, based on their best dating methods, which are incomplete knowledge. There are guesses. There are educated guesses, yes, but they are guesses. But I want to talk about Western civilization because that's where I come from. And insofar as Western civilization has impacted the whole world, we would do well, uh, all of us, even if we're not Western ourselves, we would do well to pay attention to the story of Western civilization, not only to find fault, but also to take an honest assessment of what was commendable that we want to hold on to, what is regrettable that we want to learn from and not do again because it came to a bad end every time it was done, and what we just don't know about. Some things are easy to put into one category or the other. Other things, you say, well, there were some ugly aspects to that. Then again, there were some good things that came from it. And so maybe we just put that in a, in a third category. We're going to say those are our unknowns and our uncertainties. And then hopefully we have a good understanding of right and wrong, true and false, based on God's character, based on God's word, to be able to, at some future point, by his grace, wisely categorize what happened. It's in that third category, the uncertainties category. Maybe in time, we know better where and why we would put some of those things that we're just not quite sure about. Because the problem with uncertainties and value judgments about our ancestors or about people who have lived, peoples who have lived, individuals and 
tribes and nations and empires that have risen and fallen and come and gone, the problem, the trouble, the difficulty with assessing them is when there is a conflict, there has to be some way of resolving whether we object or are uncomfortable or disagree or feel critical, recoiling because there is something wrong with them, or whether there was something immature and childish and ignorant in us. Maybe they knew something that we didn't. In fact, I would guarantee it. And just so. We know some things that they didn't know. Take it to the bank. But we don't know everything. And they didn't know everything. And we are not pure as the driven snow. In Christ, the Christian hopes to be totally sanctified, made just like him, eventually. And I say eventually, not because we don't want that right now, but because that's not what we've been given yet. We are still here, and we still have man's sinful nature in ourselves and in one another to reckon with. We still have a broken creation that has not been made new. It has not been refreshed and restored yet the way that it will at a future date be. And so we have to come to terms with that on some level. Do our best, be diligent, be good stewards, but at the same time, we have to come to terms with our limitations and consider what is God's good timing for what he will accomplish here. Consider an article in the March edition of First Things Magazine by Sorab Amari, Apostolic Empire. This one was sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez, here a couple of days ago, last Thursday, I think, to be more specific. The first paragraph reads as follows. The young are issuing marriage. Birth rates are collapsing. Abortion and even postnatal infanticide are commonplace. Yawning inequalities divide the haves from the have-nots, spreading decadence among the former while immiserating the latter. Society is losing the thread of its noblest aspirations, the meaning of its civic ideals, and the faith is widely reviled, its claims illegible in the public square. This is all true enough for contemporary Christians but I'm describing the situation of our spiritual ancestors in Imperial Rome, the chief setting for the first book in Henri Daniel Rope's monumental history of the Church of Christ, recently reissued by the invaluable Clooney Media. Published in a 10-book series over the span of two decades, from 1948 to 1965, Daniel Rope's ecclesiastical history became a massive global hit before falling into relative obscurity as masterpieces sometimes do. I won't read the whole article for you. You can go check it out. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. Do check it out. But suffice to say, as far as intros go, he makes a good point. He makes a good point. We should consider that, as in the case of Moses going up on the mountain, while the people in the camp make a golden calf for themselves, to worship as the God who brought them up out of Egypt, so also with Christians in the 
Roman Empire in the first few centuries of church history, we should not suppose that certain matters pertaining to life and godliness being neglected by the people, the very people even, who are supposed to be following God and serving God, we should not suppose that that means the story is over. If God is patient, and he is, still working and calling his servants to do what he has prepared for them to do, what he is going to equip and bless them and guide them to do, they may not see the fruit of their labors soon, or they might not even see it in their lifetime. What is that to them? Does that mean that they give up? They despair? They throw in the towel? No. No. Not if we heed the call to not grow weary in doing what is good, which we ought to. So then the big question is not, are we seeing an immediate turnaround? Our task isn't even, I don't believe, limited by whether we can imagine a revival or a restoration or repentance, blessing. No, our goal is, our task is to listen to what God has told us, to do what God has commanded us, to trust that God will work all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's our task. That's our job. That's our responsibility. Another article I'll put a link for in the description of this podcast episode. You can check out if you have a subscription to The Daily Wire, which I do. Michael Whitaker writes a brief history of the Roman Empire, part two, the public thing. And I hesitate to read anything from this because it's subscribers only. And I don't want to step on any toes for the folks over at The Daily Wire. But I will share with you something which this article brought to my attention, which is in the public domain, right? It is the public thing to know this. And that is that republic literally means the public thing. Res publica, the public thing. Michael Whitaker points out that most of the 200 or so nation states in the world today consider themselves, call themselves some kind of republic. Whether they are a republic in the classical sense is another matter, but it's just like the word politics. What is politics anyways? Politics gets something of a bad rap, like it's an inherently negative, corrupt thing. No, no. Politicians often are corrupt, but politics in and of itself is not an inherently corrupt thing. It's just the public thing. And so politics is as dirty a business as we are in possession of unclean hands and hard hearts and selfish ambition and vain conceit. Politics is as dirty or as clean as we are because we are the public. (laughs) So a republic is just the public thing. And you might say, well, then what's a Republican, right? And this is where it gets 
more distinctly Roman and Greek. Although Os Guinness would say that Israel, ancient Israel, given that Moses went up on the mount to get the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law and bring it down to the people and that the people would be ruled by the law of God as delivered through Moses, by Moses, to and from Moses, you might say that ancient Israel was a republic more than it was a theocracy. A theocracy is a government by the priesthood, a government by the priests, by the clergy. But see, that's not quite what God prescribed for Israel, that they would be governed first and foremost by these priests or these holy men. Do they play a role in the government? Yes. Does that mean that they are first and foremost the governing authority? No, because they are subject to the law. When you come to Samuel, for instance, his mother Hannah is unable to have children and she is not her husband's only wife. And she's always being taunted about not having any children. And so she goes in to pray at the temple, earnestly asking God to give her children so that she won't be mocked anymore. She won't be teased and derided and scoffed at anymore, bullied, if you will. And if God will give her a son, she will dedicate, consecrate that son to the Lord's service, which is to, that is to say, she will, in some sense, donate her son when he's been weaned to the service of the temple. And so Samuel is born, and when he is weaned, he's no longer nursing, he goes to live with the priest. And the priest has sons of his own, and they are in the priesthood as well. But Eli is his name. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are corrupt. They are very corrupt, lecherous, abusive, perverse. And God makes it known to Samuel that Eli and his sons are going to be judged. They are going to die. God is going to kill them for having either actively or passively neglected obedience to God's law, to his moral standard, his holiness. God is going to kill them. And that is what God does. Because first and foremost, it is not just whatever the priests say that goes. The government is not first and foremost the priests. It's not arbitrary. This is something Samuel Rutherford in more of a civil magistrate sphere and context gets into in Lex Rex, as opposed to divine right of kings, the divine right of kings, which King James first held to, espoused, articulated, in contrast to the idea that the king is the law because God makes the king. And so what the king says, that's what goes. Samuel Rutherford pointed out, searching the scriptures, the whole counsel of God, being a Berean about it, being a faithful student of the word so that he could present himself 
as one unashamed and approved, rightly handling the word of truth. Samuel Rutherford says, no, no, no. The law is king because God gives the law. The law is king. The public thing must be, first and foremost, submitted to the law of God, which is to say God's moral standard. Not whatever you feel today, and that's the moral standard, and then tomorrow it'll be some other thing. No, what God says, because God is, first and foremost, the authority. This is why Old Testament and New Testament, we see God's servants at the same time submitting to governing authorities, even when they're corrupt, seeking the welfare of the city, even when the city is pagan, being good citizens, orderly, peaceable, hardworking, diligent, honest, and simultaneously, for the same reason, occasionally having to tell the person in authority, no. How could that be if the king is the law? The simple answer to that question is, it only makes sense. It only makes sense for Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Peter, John, Paul, to disobey a direct order here and there when there's a conflict between what God said and what the governing authority said, it only makes sense if sometimes the governing authority is wrong because they have disobeyed God and they have told us to do something that God told us to not do, or they have told us to not do something that God told us to do. That gives us a way of applying checks and balances that are not just a tug of war, that are not just gamesmanship, who's the most shrewd, is not the first question, unless the answer is God, because God is far more clever than you are or I am. You know, this morning I finished up listening to a Jordan Peterson video that was posted to the Daily Wire's website, and I started it yesterday, and it was good. It was good stuff. I like Jordan Peterson. I hope that what it is that he and these other smart, engaged, outspoken intellectuals, philosophers, academics, concerned about the direction of Western civilization, I I hope what they gathered together, Lord willing, in London to discuss in the coming months has a good end. I hope that it's blessed. I'm going to pray for them and what they're doing because in its welfare, I think we find our welfare. I trust them a great deal more than I trust the likes of that associate dean of DEI at Stanford who set up the Fifth Circuit judge, Judge Duncan, who was invited to speak at the Federalist Society but couldn't due to heckling, a protest, brown shirt tactics, which we talked about in yesterday's episode. Briefly, Jordan Peterson and other intellectuals and community leaders, faith leaders from around the world may be gathering in London in the coming months to talk about ARC, A-R-C, which is what they're calling their movement or committee or collaborative discussion. The Alliance for Responsible Citizenship is being established 
as an international community with a vision for a better world where every citizen can prosper, contribute, and flourish. We are seeking answers to some of our day's most fundamental questions grounded in our core belief that everyone has intrinsic worth and something to contribute, and humanity has an extraordinary capacity for innovation and ingenuity. What's interesting to me about this is that Peterson has been doing quite a lot of work here in recent years talking about the Bible and not just, right? I worry a little bit that he may give rise to a kind of conservative neo-paganism and new age philosophy and religion. I worry a bit if he has an appearance of godliness but denies its power, but I still will pray for him. I'll pray for the folks who are listening to him, the folks he's collaborating with, and I trust them more than I trust the Democrats here in the U.S., the Klaus Schwab, WEF, Al Gore types. At worst, I think that the Jordan Petersons are like the pagan kings we read about in the Old Testament. At worst. I'm not saying that's who they are. I'm saying at worst, that's the case. But the Lord could use their efforts, their discussion. I'm sure he will. He'll work all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But there are six questions to contemplate. They have a survey. Arcforum.com slash survey is the link. And the first question is, can we find a unifying story that will guide us as we make our way forward? You know, that's, that's an interesting question. That's a really interesting question for the inheritors of Western civilization in particular. You know, I would put forward, I would propose an answer to that question in part involves unapologetically embracing Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian roots for Western civilization. All the countries that he mentioned having gone to, traveled with his wife to, gathering together with various influential people who were willing to sit down and talk with him at a dinner table about what the problems were in their country or in their city or in their community or in their field as they saw it, what they were encountering and observing. That's how this all got started, it seems, from his description. I note that all of those countries seem to be inheritors of the Western tradition, which you can't have as we know it without the stabilizing influence of Christianity. You can't. The public thing as we know it, you cannot have only with the Greeks and the Romans. You must, as Tom Holland discovered, you must have the influence of Christianity. It's interesting. It's fascinating to me that here as I am reading through Exodus and before that Genesis, as I have resolved, not because Jordan Peterson or the Daily Wire or Out the Bee or Glenn Beck or Dennis Prager or <laughs> take your pick, not because any of these guys said you should read your Bible through from cover to cover again, but because the Spirit has brought me to that conviction, that personal conviction. And as I'm podcasting, how could I deprive you of the whole counsel of God. I don't want to deprive the public thing of the goodness and the truth and the beauty of God's word. And so I am opening up my podcast episodes with a reading 
sequential of God's word, cover to cover. And yes, let's talk about current events and ask the question, can we understand what is happening, what is being done and what is being said and what is being proposed and what is being considered and what is being contemplated and what is being rejected and what is being loved or hated, favored or disfavored, rewarded or punished in light of this chapter, this story, this promise of God, this intervention, this command or prohibition from God, what he says he loves and what he says he detests, what he says he favors, what he says he disfavors, what he says he will bless, what he says he will damn. At the same time, we've got Jordan Peterson, I hope, being used of the Lord, I pray, doing a special at the Daily Wire on Exodus and finding in the narrative of Exodus, which you can't have without Genesis, inspiration to see what we face right now in a new light. I find as I tune in every now and then just to catch a little bit, I can't, I don't have time to listen to what everybody has to say as much as they have to say it all the time. And if you don't have the time to hear everything that I have to say all the time about everything, that's as well may be, right? You're in the same boat I am. Lots of people are saying lots of things all the time. We're finite creatures. I'm just going to say what I can to those who will listen to me. And then I can say what Paul said to the elders in Ephesus. I am innocent of anyone's blood. My hands are clean so that when I stand before my Lord and Savior, I don't hear, you wicked servant. I hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's all any of us should aspire to, really, truly. But I look at this first question, the very first question that they ask, (laughs) this ark, as they're calling it, which is a self-conscious reference to Noah's ark. You know it is. Can we find a unifying story that will guide us as we make our way forward? And I say, yes, yes, you can. You can by reading Genesis and Exodus, knowing where all of us come from, all of us alike being descended from Noah and his sons, Adam and Eve before that, but Noah and his sons, that is an equalizing origin story. And it doesn't mean that all peoples have made equally valid choices from that point forward. Nope. They weren't even out of sight of the ark, the original ark that God commanded Noah to build when you've got one of Noah's sons making a mockery of him having passed out drunk in the tent, telling his brothers, hey, get a load of this. One of the three sons being cursed, him and all of his descendants. That's an ugly, unfortunate happening. And yet God's promise is better and stronger and supersedes whatever curse Noah pronounced on his own son and the descendants of his son ever after. God's promise is better, thankfully. I would say we have, we don't need to find it. We have it. We have a unifying story. And that is found in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and Joshua and Judges and so on and so forth. It's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the book of Acts. It's found in the book of Revelation as well and all of those epistles in between. It's found in 
Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs and in Job and in all the major and minor prophets. It's found in Plutarch and Polybius and Thucydides and Herodotus and Homer and it's found in Augustine and in Luther, in Aquinas, in Samuel Rutherford, in the Founding Fathers. We do have a unifying story. And you say, well, <clears throat> not everybody's an American, Garrett. And I say, yeah, but everybody descends from Noah and his three sons. And insofar as Western civilization is where we're going to have to start, you know, if I have to start in my own home, if I have to start when I look at myself in the mirror in the morning, and then from there, I check to see how my wife is doing. I check to see how our children are doing. If our neighbor needs to borrow a cup of sugar, we start there too. If my dad calls and says, hey, I need a ride to the mechanics to pick up my van, I start there. If they need somebody to stand in on the security detail at church on a Sunday morning or to help out with middle school youth group discussion facilitation on a Wednesday night, I start there. If Jordan Peterson and these other folks with ARC are gathering together 2,000 thoughtful, engaged persons from around the English-speaking world, first and foremost, because we speak the same language. Also, you can find why we don't all in the world speak the same language back in Genesis. God did that. <laughs> did you notice that? God says, yeah, I did that. I did that. I confused the language of every man to where he couldn't understand his neighbor so that they would spread out. There was too much centralization. And God used a confusion of language to decentralize humanity at Babel because his command was be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. How do you do that if you're all packed into a city working on some big vanity project, building a tower to heaven? You can't. An interesting thing to consider here in relation to what's being proposed, what Zorab Amari is writing about over at First Things, what Mr. Whitaker is writing about over at the Daily Wire, what Jordan Peterson is getting at with this whole ARC business, an interesting, more recent piece of history that we might consider is the day that Germany declared war on the United States of America. December 11th, 1941 is when the U.S. declared war right back. Actually, the U.S. Congress declared war, which is to say we need to get back in this country to actually following our own laws and our own constitution. We're not even following our own, much less God's, which is a real problem, unless the two conflict, in which case we should obey God's law rather than our own man-made laws. But I digress. December 11th, 1941, the vote was 88 to 0 in the Senate, 393 to 0 in the House. Unanimous. The U.S. declared war right back on Germany. Germany declared war on us first, hours before. Now, it was building for some time. It didn't just come out of nowhere. Japan sucker punched us at Pearl Harbor, and you can say, oh, there's all this other stuff that led into that too. And I say, fine, great. 
Splendid. What's your point? The United States of America partnered with the United Kingdom, partnered with Australia, partnered with what was left of French resistance. We worked together with the Soviet Union, speaking of good, bad, and ugly. The United States of America and the United Kingdom and Australia and these various other countries worked together to fight and defeat Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, imperial Japan, and set aside for a moment the quagmire we might have if we started trying to trace everything back to, well, if we would have done this differently, if we would have done that differently, then we could have prevented it this way. You know, God doesn't work that way. You could do the what ifs with God calling Moses up on the mountain, even though in the absence of Moses, the people are going to make a golden calf. Well, God, if you would have just left Moses there or Paul at Ephesus, this is the last time I'm going to see you. You know, and God knows my hands are clean of anyone's blood. I did not neglect to preach to you the whole counsel of God. My hands are clean. My conscience is clear. But after I leave, wolves are going to come in among you and they won't be gentle. They're going to twist and pervert and corrupt the truth. And they are going to deceive plenty of people. And we say, well, but God, what if, right? What if you hadn't pulled Paul out of there? Maybe you should have just kept him there, left him there. Maybe he should have stayed. What if this and what if that? And you know what? We need to be careful when we start doing that in relation to God. If we would work the other direction and we start with looking how God has operated and how he directs his servants and how some people make bad choices to do bad things, and yet God is not unjust. It's not God's fault. It's not actually his sin. He's not creating the sin that he gives us the ability to choose does not mean that he is culpable. If we make bad choices, if we abuse our liberty, so also you start with that understanding of God and then we realize that we are made in God's image. That is also the answer to the question. Can we find a unifying story? Yes. And Jordan Peterson even makes a explicit reference to it in his video talking about all of this. We are created in the image of Almighty God. As such, we need to treat each other with dignity and respect. We need to consider one another and be fair to one another and be reasonable. But you have to have a fixed standard of morality that is not based on your feelings, a fixed standard of right and wrong that ultimately comes back to what did God say is right and wrong. I look at World War II, and I'm actually staring right now at a book that just came last Friday. There was a pair of boxes that were sent to me of sentimental items that had belonged to my mother's parents, my maternal grandparents. One of the items that I requested when my first cousin, Michael Hernandez, very competently, very skillfully put together a catalog of items with pictures and descriptions and set up a ranked voting, ranked choice voting system for my cousins and I and my brother. One of the items I requested was our grandfather's Blue Jackets manual, 1940. And that is to say, our grandfather 
Richard Arsbon Renew was in the U.S. Naval Reserves in World War II. And this was his training manual. This was his reference book. And I open up this Blue Jackets manual, 1940, and the inside cover, the very first thing that I see on the inside cover in the front is where he wrote down his address at various times. And he also wrote down a date, November 23rd, 42. I looked up that date. What happened November 23rd, 1942? I'm sure lots of things happened, but according to Wikipedia, Operation Uranus ended in decisive Soviet victory with the German 6th Army completely encircled at Stalingrad. Also, the governor general of French West Africa agreed to accept the authority of Francois Darlan. This brought the strategically valuable port city of Dakar under Allied control. German U-boat U-172 torpedoed and sank the British merchant ship SS Ben Lomond off the coast of Brazil. Chinese second steward Poon Lim survived and would spend 133 days adrift on a raft in the South Atlantic. Fernando Celes Riez, 60, 37th president of Bolivia, died. Tomitaro Hori, 52, Japanese general, drowned while attempting to canoe down the Kamusi River during the Battle of Bunagona. Also, it would seem something happened in my grandfather's life or his military service. Something happened. Maybe that's when this Blue Jackets manual was given to him. For instance, December 11th, 1941 is when the U.S. Congress declared war right back on Germany. So that is to say, almost one year later is when my grandfather was signing his name, putting a date into his U.S. Naval Reserve's manual, the Blue Jackets manual, 1940. And I think to myself, how would it be? If everyone had said, you know what, nobody's perfect. The Germans, yeah, they're getting a little carried away. Give it time. We'll see what happens. Actually, funny thing, that is exactly what a lot of people said. Adolf Hitler was just three years prior, I believe it was, Time Magazine's Person of the Year. I believe it was 1938. He wasn't their Person of the Year after the U.S. declared war on Germany after Germany declared war on the U.S., but there were a lot of folks who wanted the U.S. to just stay out of World War II indefinitely, even though Germany was murdering by the millions anyone they considered to be mentally ill, physically unwell, politically difficult, racially inferior. The imperial Japanese, hoofda. If you thought the British Empire had its problems and its flaws, take a look at what the Imperial Japanese did and were proud of doing. At least with the British Empire, when their officers, when their soldiers, when their representatives around the world behaved badly, they tried to keep it secret because they knew if word got back to the homeland, there would be accountability. And there was. And there was. In the case of the Japanese, they were taking souvenirs. 
They were taking photographs, posing with their victims, torturing, raping, murdering. Both of my grandfathers set out, as many men of that generation did, to put a stop to it in their ways. And are we not the better for that? Or do we say, well, yeah, but America's not perfect either. America wasn't perfect either back then. America's not perfect either right now. And I say, you know what? That's part of Western tradition, that we try to learn from our mistakes. We try to correct these problems along very particular lines. And if we give up on doing that hard work of correcting our own errors, correcting one another, rectifying when there is an untruth or an evil thing being said or done, if we give up on that just because, well, nobody's perfect, then that too is a wicked thing. Think of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. It is not just Eli's sons who are killed by God. God judges them and condemns them to death. It is also Eli who saw what his sons were doing and knew and didn't put a stop to it. So they are punished for their sins. He is punished for his sin. You might say, if you don't look closely, oh, God is punishing Eli for what his sons have done? No, God is punishing Eli for what he has not done as a father, as a priest. And why? right? Why? Why does Paul tell the elders at Ephesus that wolves are going to come in and that they should take care of the flock? Why does he warn them about that except if they are supposed to protect the flock from wolves? That is to say, recognize when they're dealing with a wolf, correct false teaching, rebuke false teachers. In a gentle way, sure, to a point. Don't confuse indifference with gentleness. We ought not to be indifferent. Don't confuse cowardice with gentleness. They are not the same thing. Going back a little further in history, I have a couple other news items to bring to your attention. Harriet Rigby, I don't think that's her real name, over at Not the Bee, published a piece yesterday. Retired UK teacher finds 17th century gold ring worth 12,000 pounds in backyard. Richard McKay, a retired teacher from Bronton in the UK, was doing some landscaping, as retired people do, when he found a gold ring buried about 10 inches deep in the backyard, in the back garden of his 16th century English farmhouse. McKay was planting a Shonathus bush when he found it. I don't know if I said that right. Maybe. Shonathus. C-E-A-N-O-T-H-U-S. Anyway, a bush. He was planting a bush, okay, when he found it. (laughs) So maybe that detail is crucial for you to know, just in case you're looking to plant one of those bushes or go digging for 16th, 17th century artifacts. Point being, this ring dates from 1620 very likely belonged to Humphrey Cockerham of Columpton in Devon. It bears a seal with the coat of arms of the Cockerham family and the initials HC behind. Humphrey was recorded as the head of the family in 1620 and lived at Hillersdon Manor in the early 17th century, which is 42 miles 
east of where this ring was found. 12,000 pounds, that's a good sum for a ring. This retired school teacher plans to take the proceeds from auctioning this ring off to help their children, which is great. That's great. Good on him. There's a kind of parable, I think, to that. Edward Teach, also at Not The Bee, published a piece this morning in a very opposite direction, which is to say we should recognize the tension here in our day. Statues and monuments of old white men need to be destroyed because they offend diverse modern public, Welsh government says. The woke Welsh government, Edward Teach writes, is rewriting history again, likely spelling the end for monuments of significant historical figures such as the Duke of Wellington, Admiral Lord Nelson, Henry Morton Stanley, and countless other old white men, as the government calls them. Their Orwellian new best practice advice calls for establishing the right historical narrative. And that is a quote, right historical narrative, stating that councils and public bodies should take action to hide, relocate, or even destroy monuments, modern sites of memorialization, lest they be offensive to the diverse modern public. And this, my friends, is the or else. This is the or else to what Jordan Peterson and this ARC crew is planning to get together to discuss. This is the or else. On the one hand, you have the folks who are saying, Let's get together to discuss how to save this virgin planet of ours from further corruption. Let's figure out how to depopulate, how to decarbonize, how to consume less, how to have fewer babies, how to erase the memory of Western civilization. I'll play a clip for you from one of my favorite movies, one that I grew up watching, thanks to my grandparents were new, having sent a TV with a VHS player, VCR, built into it. It was the greatest thing. It was so great. Also, thanks to them sending this movie so that my brother and I could watch it again and again growing up. Here's a clip from the early part of Ben-Hur. Cut one. Take a listen. The emperor is displeased. He wishes Judea made into a more obedient and disciplined province. He has ordered the new governor and me to restore order. I intend to carry out his wishes. Yes, but how, Messiah? Oh, you can break a man's skull, you can arrest him, you can throw him into a dungeon. But how do you control what's up here? How do you fight an idea, especially a new idea? Sextus, you ask how to fight an idea. I'll tell you how. With another idea. How do you fight an idea? <laughs> <laughs> with another idea. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. If somebody says, well, we shouldn't ever fight. We shouldn't ever debate. We shouldn't ever discuss when we disagree. Nobody's going to change anybody's mind. Everybody's just going to get upset. I say that's pacifism. And that is not what we are called to. That's not what we find in God's word. That is not what God calls us to. Nope, no, 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 no. I say that is irresponsible. That is hubris, laziness, apathy, Indifference, cowardice, negligence. No, no. If there are some very bad, very destructive, very deadly, on a mass scale, on a global scale, ideologies, which are insisting that they be the only ones to do any talking, how do we fight those ideas? With another idea, with a better idea. Another little bit of history here. This one, a little more fascinating Mysterious, 
thought-provoking. Joel Abbott over at Not The Bee published this piece March 10th. Get in here and learn about the moon-eyed people, the Cherokee in hat. <laughs> the Cherokee. <laughs> I'm sorry, moon-eyed people. It's just, that's quite uh, quite the name. <clears throat> the moon-eyed people the Cherokee encountered when they first moved into Appalachia and the insane connection to Britain. I'll put a link in. You can read the fuller article. Long and short of it, some have long wondered whether a certain Welsh king or prince named Madoc traveled to North America round about 1170 AD, set up shop, had some conflict with the natives, built some fortifications, were attacked and killed and driven out. There are rumors that the Vikings were here also before Columbus. Of course, we all know that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But my point in bringing this up is not to say, ah, aha, the Welsh may have been here a thousand years ago. Therefore, we have just as much of a claim to this land as the indigenous peoples, as the Cherokee, as the Iroquois, as the... No, no. My point is, everybody came here from somewhere, and people are people. And we should know our history because it is important. It is important if the Vikings were here before Columbus. It is important if a Welsh prince came here with some of his people before that. It is important if everyone alike is descended from Noah and his sons. These are important parts of our story. Otherwise, what are we doing archaeology for? What are we doing any kind of work in history for? If we forget where we come from, if we forget our story, I think we lose our ability to make decisions in the present. If you don't know where you came from, how do you even know where you're at right now, much less where you're going? You're just lost. We don't want to be lost. We don't want to be lost. As Peterson, again, making a biblical reference in his video over at the Daily Wire, pointed out, without a vision, a people perish. We know where that comes from, right? You say, oh man, Jordan Peterson is so profound. He's so brilliant. That's in the Bible. And that isn't to say he's not brilliant. He is. Part of the reason why he's brilliant is because of what has been passed down to us through the generations, because of the stabilizing influence of Christianity on what the Greeks and the Romans, by God's grace, were able to figure out and build. It doesn't have to be everybody's story to be a value to us. It should be a value to us. And if other people don't like us knowing our own story, then maybe they are our enemy. And I can pray for them. I can do good to them when I have the opportunity. But if they are communists, the kind that say, you are free to communicate your opinion in Siberia. You know, if, if they're those kinds, then I say, <laughs> yet, yet, I have another idea. I got to run though. That's all the time I've got for this episode. Speaking of other ideas, I need to get to work. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.